Hunger, we've gotten 734 questions this year. I made that number up, but it's got to be pretty close. Okay, I was about to say, wow, you, uh, you counted. It's probably pretty close. I bet we get five or six questions a week. Remember, it's askthecompound at gmail.com. Askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. That's it. Getting all these emails mixed up. Today's Ask the Compound is brought to you by our friends at Bird Dogs. Duncan, big news in Bird Dogs this week. I noticed they sent me an email. I'm on the email list, obviously. They know me. They've got some new colors. My favorite kind of shorts are, they have the gym shorts, they have the khaki shorts. These are the khakis, because they have the little belt loops. I haven't had to use the belt loops yet, but new colors, so they have three of them. I like the I ones. liked the mint green, and I don't know, is it salmon? It's called Orange Blossom. Oh, wow, that's bold. That's bold of, of you. I don't I mind like, taking bold I, I like colors. I like the blue. The blue's my favorite. The blue's nice, too. I, I got a pair of the, the green and the orange. I'm a sucker for new colors. They're very, you know, I'm stocking up now for the summer, for spring break, all that kind of stuff. It's great. Also, still, and I think I got a free T-shirt out of the deal, too. I don't know how I buy two pairs. I don't know what, what the deal is. But with us, you can still get the free white tech dad hat. Still got it here. Uh, so put an ATC in the code or just go to birddogs.com slash ATC. My wife is saying that my, my closet is overflowing with bird dogs. I can't help it. They're everywhere. Yeah, you know, on uh, on Thanksgiving, I actually was uh, talking about bird dogs with someone. Someone for real, like completely unprompted, was like, uh, are those, you know, like, are those bird dogs? Or uh, I guess they saw the logo on, on what I was wearing. And I told him, I was like, yeah, they, they sponsor our, uh, our podcast. And they're it's like, oh, I keep getting started. targeted advertising on social media for them. And I've thought about trying them. Real, real conversation. Do. Get a free hat out of the deal. All right. Um, you wanted to spike the ball real quick on a stock pick or not yet? Oh, uh, that can wait a second. I First, I just wanted to, I wanted to say it's that time of year. Spotify, Wrapped, um, you know, share with us any of your compound podcasts that are coming up in your top 10. We love to see that. Um, so share that with us. I think we're going to be doing... Yeah, we've been getting um, a lot of that on social media that people share it. Right, It's yeah. pretty cool how, how that works. Yeah, it's uh, it's very cool. And yeah, we have um, we have even the Ask the Compound is the youngest show. So, the, you know, we're still small and growing fast. Um, but we had hundreds of people with us in, in their top 10 um, and top five, that kind of thing, which is very cool to see. So, so really appreciate that. Um, our best show of the year. Do you have any guesses? I was going to oh, ask I have you. no idea. Our best show of the it? year was, it's, uh, is it crazy to be 100% invested in stocks? Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I would have never even guessed what it could be. Yeah. Okay. Good question. I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was it. But uh, yeah, thanks to, thanks to everyone for listening. And yeah, if Apple has a similar thing, then share that too. But I, think they I, do. I, no I know one, they do no for music. I don't know about for podcasting. Though. But uh, All right. yeah. And then the next thing I was going to say is just because it's become like a tradition where we you know make jokes about... Uh, everyone's favorite oat milk stock. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, it's been a pretty good, it's been a pretty good month. So, John, if you could uh, chart on of, you know, this is this is oatly over the last month. Um, so not eighty percent a month. Yeah, that's not bad. All right, John, show the show the year to date return though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before the show, Duncan actually asked John to pull up the chart of Oatly on a year to date basis, and he looked at it. He said, "Wait, wait, wait! This is not what I wanted to see. It's still down thirty five percent." Uh, pull yeah. the pull the pull a good chart, and it's over the one month. <laughs> oh, okay, no. that's all time. <laughs> all time. It's, so this is down ninety four percent from the IPO, and that's it spiked after the IPO as well. Oh, I was buying what? it. <laughs> oh, on the IPO. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I yeah. No, I've 
I'm basically Amazon bought it was down ninety five percent in the tech bump at the tech bubble. Yeah. I mean, same thing. Yeah, give me hope. Help me rationalize holding on. All right. All first right. question. Up first today we have. I'm surprised we haven't gotten anyone who's written it and said it. I'm I'm with Duncan here. I've gotten crushed on, on Oatly as well. Oh, I've heard it. Yeah, I've had multiple people reach out and be like, not just Oatly, but on other things. Yeah, there's okay. there's camaraderie there. Uh, so up first today, we have a question from Dave. I'm still new to bonds, so forgive me if you've covered this before, but what are the various outcomes for bonds if rates rise or fall from here? I'm trying to figure out the right maturity for diversifying into treasuries and want to understand the risks. All right, we've still been getting a heavy influx of questions about bonds and yields. There's still a ton of questions, right? I, it's, it's, it's plateaued a little bit for sure, but I think a lot of people are slowly but surely preparing themselves for the idea that the Fed might cut rates in 2024, which could mean lower cash rates, CDE rates, money markets, savings accounts, all those things will go down. So I think people who've made that move into cash and they went from earning 10 basis points at their big bank to at least earning four or five, maybe more percent in T-bills or savings account or money markets, they've made that leap. But now they're saying, okay, Maybe it has to be more fixed income so I can actually lock in some. So our friends at the U.S. Benchmark series of ETFs send us this monthly update, which is pretty cool. John, throw this chart up here. So what this this is an interest rate scenario analysis tool. And of course, different bonds have different maturities and different durations. And the yield curve never moves exactly the same. Like you don't have a 1% move in every single maturity. A lot of times these bonds move in, in you know, different forms and the interest rate, the magnitude of the change is different. So what Benchmark Series did for us is they looked at what would happen over a 12-month period to these bonds, and they show the two-year, three-year, five, seven, 10, 20, and 30-year treasuries, right? So a bunch of different maturities. What would happen if rates rose 50% or fell 50, or 50 basis points or fell 50 basis points? What if they rose 1% or fell 1%? So as an example, we'll show here. So the, the 30-year treasury, if rates were to fall 1%, is up over 20%, right? 22% or so if it, over a year. If rates were to rise 1%, it's down a little less than 10%. Now, there's this funny term in the bond market land for this called convexity. I won't bore you with the details there because that sounds like a very scientific word. But all that means is most of the time, if bond yields fall, your price is going to rise more than if bond yields rose the loss. So the gain outweighs the loss. It's not a one-to-one -one thing. But the other thing, throw this back up here, John. The other thing to look at is like a shorter term bond, if rates were to fall 1%, you can see the two-year, it rises 5%. And most of that is the yield right now. So you're not going to get as big a bang for your buck if yields were to fall in something of a shorter term bond, just like you're not going to see as big of losses, right? You're not going to see a loss because the yield's going to make up for it. So it's you do have this interesting dynamic now, though, where if rates rise, your loss is going to be not that bad. And if rates fall, your, your gain is going to be pretty good, which was the opposite of what things were like a few years ago during the pandemic when rates were so low. So you have higher yields now. You have this convexity piece where if yields fall, you're going to get a pretty big gain in your bonds. And if rates rise a little bit, you're still you have some uh, you know, shock absorbers there. So wait, you're saying I should tax loss my Ovi and uh, buy up a bunch of long bonds? Is that, is you that want, the move? Yeah, if you want to nail, I mean, rates have already fallen a little bit. That, but that, this is the problem with trying to guess this, is we don't know if interest rates fall, how much are they going to fall in the 30-year versus the two-year versus the five? We don't know what the magnitude of that fall is going to be because the variables there are what's the Fed doing, what's the economy doing, what's inflation doing. What are bond traders doing? Where are bond people moving your money? So 
the, the helpful thing about a chart like that is it shows you what the potential outcomes can be, and it gives you a range of expectations, but you don't you just don't know what what the magnitude of those rate changes is going to be. But that that's the idea. So if you want bigger bang for your buck if rates fall, you go further out on the yield curve, but that means way more volatility too. And if rates rise a little bit, you're gonna ding more. And if you want some more stability, you stay on the shorter end of things. I think that's the idea. I think people sometimes paint the bond market as being like very mathematical and easier to predict than the stock market, but this this doesn't really sound like it if it comes down to no, it is be someone because picking rate times to hike or, or cut or pause. Well, but but it is it, bond market is more math because over the long term, call it five to seven years, your starting yield is going to explain ninety to ninety five percent of your yeah, yeah. gain. So th these are the short term moves. And so you kind of know what's going to happen based on where rates go from here. You just don't know where rates going to go. That's the hard part in the short term. If you're trying to guess the bond market, you're guessing interest rates, and that's really, really difficult to do. So I talked about this earlier this week on my blog. The 10-year Treasury went from a low to 3.3% this year. Then it shot up to 5% in a matter of months. And then in the past month, it's gone from 5% to 4.1%. And no one could have predicted that, that path of rates. right? If you tried to guess that somehow because you're trying to guess inflation or economic growth or whatever, good luck with that. That's that's why bonds are, you know, generally for longer-term people that want less volatility. And so if you're trying to guess this and be like a hedge fund manager, yeah, that's it's going to be a lot harder to do. So I would think about it more from the perspective of a long-term investor because no one can predict interest rates. That's the point. Got it. Makes sense. All right. Next one. Okay, up next. Uh, I wonder, actually... <clears throat> Question on that. Do you think we're going to get as many bond questions in 2024? Or do you think we're going to see a, a shift, a turning point in this? That, that'll be interesting. I, I guess it depends where yields go. All right. But obviously, yields getting to 5% is one of the things that caused a lot of people to write us in about bonds. But it has slowed down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. We're doing an Ask the Compound Sentiment Indicator. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, up next, we have a question from Tim. Sure, it's great the S&P 500 is up 20% this year. But aren't we just pricing in the inevitable Fed rate cuts in 2024? Should we really expect the market to go up again next year after surprising the upside this year? Color me skeptical. Full disclosure, I'm naturally bearish and take a bit of an anti-Ben stance about the markets. Wow. I kind of like the anti-Ben thing here. Uh, this one made me laugh a little bit. Do you remember Garth Brooks? I think I've told you this before. Was the greatest selling album musician of all the 90s, which I is very I remember that surprising. from the Chuck Klosterman book, which still yes. yeah, boggles my mind. Yeah. But do you remember, I think he was at the height of his powers. It was like 1998 or 1999. And he did this, he tried to have a rock star persona of Christopher Gaines. John, show this up here. This is when Garth, he, he did the little like, little mini goatee thing. And he put a wig on and had his hair go over his eyes and he looked a little goth. And he changed into Chris Gaines and everyone's kind of like, wait, What? And this was his rock star persona. So I'm thinking maybe I should do that as like the anti-Ben. And this is my doomer personality where I have some sort of anti-Ben who's always glasses half full optimistic. And I think of it like his name was Chris Gaines. I could be Chris Loss, right? Or Chris Bear, something I like, like it. that. I'm liking it a lot. I turn into a perma bear, I don't know, once a week. It'd just be fun to try. Like the dollar is going to crash. There's flames all around me. And the United States financial system, as we know it, is over. Hyperinflation is coming. I think I would pay. It. I would pay money to see this. So I I'll think start this a newsletter. Is to do. Just full time perma bear. Okay, maybe not. But this is what makes the market. I guess this person is anti Ben. I appreciate that. That's if that's your natural inclination, that's fine. Whatever works for you. 
maybe the stock market is pricing in Fed cuts because it is forward-looking after all. That's what people like to say. I do like to look at historical market returns to think about something like this because I think what this person is asking is, okay, the, the, sure, the market is up 20% this year, but what happens after a year is up 20%? So I, I like to look at this. One of my favorite all-time stats of the market is the fact that over the past 100 years or so, you've been more likely to see a 20% gain in a calendar year than a loss. So not including this year, there's been 34 gains of 20%. This is them on the screen right now. There's only been 26 total down years. Okay, so what happens the year after a 20% or more gain going back to 1928? You can see there's way more green on this screen than there is red. So John, keep this up here for a second, and I'm going to go through the stats. So 22 out of the 34 years that we experienced a 20% gain, the next year was also a gain. So that's 65% of the time. Stock market was down 12 out of 34 years. That's 35% of the time. The average return was roughly 9%. Average gain when the market was up was 19%. The average loss was 9%. There was 19 double-digit up years following a 20% gain. You remember the, the late 90s? It was 1995 to 1999. Every single one of those years was a 20% gain. That's probably part of this. Uh, there were just two double-digit down years following a 20% gain. One of them was in 2022. So 2021 was a big, I think we were up 28 or 29%. We were down more than, we were down pretty big the next year. Uh, so we are teetering on the edge of a 20% gain this year. We'll see if Santa comes through by the end of the year or not and hold on to it, but you can do the chart off, John. So so the, the returns after a 20% up year are actually pretty decent and I guess kind of average if you want to look at it. You know, it's... There's actually a few more losses in there than gains. So the other question is, does one year really impact the next year? Like, is there a correlation there? So John, throw up my next chart. I looked at the, the average return from one year to the next, when stocks are up, when stocks are down, when stocks are up big, so call it 15% or more. And then when stocks are down big, call it a loss of 15% or worse. And the average returns are all 10, 11, 12%. So there's really not much signal here. There's more, you know... One year doesn't impact the next. I mean, I'm sure you could slice and dice the data a little bit and, and try to find something in there, but that, that's mostly data mining probably. So uh, it's certainly possible that we're we're pulling forward 2024 returns because the Fed is going to cut and the stock market is getting ahead of it. But I just think you, you can't really be smart enough to say just because the stock market's up this year means it's going to be down next year and we're going to see a Chris Gaines phenomenon where anti-Ben is going to be right. I, I think the... The thing to remember about historical return numbers is that like, they're helpful to set expectations, but it's also true that things that have never happened before in the stock market seem to happen all the time. So I think it's just important to prepare yourself for a wide, wide range of outcomes. That's my whole thinking with looking at returns like that is, is there's a lot of big up years and there's a handful of down years, and that's the best I can do for you is most of the time the stock market goes up, but sometimes it goes down. Do you think uh, perma-bears always pick the underdog? Like if the Panthers are playing the Ravens, are they going Panthers? Like are they, is that in their just nature, you think? I, I mean, I've basically been a perma bear my whole life if I'm rooting for the Lions then, right? <laughs> okay, so when it comes to sports, you're a perma bear, I see. I, I, I guess I had to be. All right, good. I like a little pushback. That's a fair question. Let's do another one. Hey. Up next, we have a question from John. Before 2022, I was adamant about not paying off my mortgage. I thought it was a mistake to pay off my previous home in a low-rate environment. But now, with nearly 8% interest rates and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in effect, I've had a change of heart. The higher interest rate uh, makes each payment more costly, and I doubt I can consistently beat 8% returns on, the, on investments. 
the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, especially for folks in high-tax states like me, pushes us towards the standard deduction instead of itemizing, making the mortgage tax deduction less beneficial. I'm curious to hear Bill Sweet's thoughts on all of this. When you ask for Bill Sweet... Ask and you shall receive. Bill gets called out by name here a lot. Bill, I think this this email was actually came to my inbox and it was, uh, I wrote a blog post a couple weeks ago saying that I'm just not a big fan of paying off a mortgage early. It's tax advantaged. It's a good inflation hedge. What do you think in terms of the tax part of it here? Because a lot of this seems to make sense to me. Yeah, Ben, you're a homeowner. And uh, John, I mean, great, great thought. Uh, Really, John's question has to do with tax deductions rather than mortgage interest. And and Ben, I find that mortgage interest deductions uh, for tax purposes, they're generally overrated. And John kind of alluded to why in the question. So I want to talk through a little bit of how it works to kind of set the table. John, can we throw the chart up that we uh, that we slapped together before the show? So let's start from left to right here. Uh, for those at home, the 2017 standard deduction was $12,000. Uh, this year, that's going to come in for married filing joint couples at $27,000. And what that means is in order to realize any tax deductions relating to mortgage interest or property taxes or, or the like, you need to exceed that hurdle. And so due to that Trump-era tax cut that happened back in 2017, the hurdle's just much higher today than it was at any time in in recent history. And to illustrate why on the right side, I I say, look, if we're capped at the uh, $10,000 state and local tax deduction, we would need to deduct more than about $13,000 of more, $24,000 or $23,000 of mortgage interest in order to exceed that standard deduction threshold. In other words, uh, for this example I've illustrated here, you're paying $24,000 of mortgage interest, which at 8%, that's a $300,000 loan, you're only able to deduct the, for the last $6,000 of mortgage interest. And to put that into terms, John, can we, can we kill the chart? To put that into like dollar amounts, that's only worth about $2,000. So Ben, what John's getting at is, I'm gonna borrow 300K and pay $24,000 to do that, and I really only get a $2,000 tax break for it, right? So this, this is the SALT thing that especially people in the coast complain yep. about, people with high incomes. Wait, what does SALT stand for again? State and local tax deduction. Yeah, throw it up on the whiteboard behind me. Okay, but so let's say that let, let's say this thing runs up and that comes back into play. Is it a better deal then? Yes, on a relative basis, right? Because ultimately, everybody gets a standard deduction for free. You don't have to do anything to earn that standard deduction. So it would increase the relative tax deduction of the mortgage interest, but you're still paying that money out of pocket. Like, I guess that's the issue. And just to frame it again in, in terms of percentages, we have an 8% pre-tax mortgage rate, Ben. If we if we include that $2,000 that, that $2, of tax reduction, what that's worth when you, when you actually do the math, that only decreases the mortgage rate to 7.3%, right? So you're still paying after taxes 7.3%. Ben, to answer your question, that would drop the effective mortgage rate to about 6.8, 6.7%. But you're still paying after taxes that amount to borrow money. And relative to what you can get in, a let's say, a bond fund, a treasury fund, uh, or some compounding gains, yeah, I don't think it's as worth it as it was before, and the taxes are definitely part of that. So my thinking was, I was talking more about like the 80% of people who have a mortgage have a rate 4% or below. And right. I thought for those people, I yes. can't see a world in that where that makes sense. But if you're having a 7 or 8% hurdle, now that makes more sense to me, because that's yeah. a bigger hurdle. However, how much benefit are you really going to get? Because if you have a 7 or 8% mortgage, aren't you hoping to refinance at five or six in the coming years? So if yeah. you're paying it off early now, are you really going to get that big of a benefit if you're just going to refinance anyway? I mean, right. I, I guess it's yeah. kind of the idea of making a bigger down payment now right. for that, but I can see the benefit if you have a 7 or 8% over 30 years, the life of the loan, 
But what if you're going to have it for two years and you're going to refinance yeah. at six in a couple of years? Does it still make sense to repay it early? That's yeah. where I think you can kind of think through like, oh, well, maybe it doesn't. Yep. And so fair point. So I think, Ben, the, the way to actually solve the equation, and again, like a mortgage, typically you're looking at 15 to 30 years. So yes, you can refinance. Yes, you can. Move, but what do you know what you're refinancing to? I, I think it comes down to arbitrage. What can I earn on my cash or short-term investments in the market relative to what am I paying? And I think you do have to do the tax math on either side to get an actual answer. And right now it favors paying down that mortgage if you're, I'd say, above 6 7%. And what's your not only the investment hurdle, what's your liquidity profile? Yep. Because putting that money into a mortgage means liquidity is drained and you're not going to see it. Versus, You could say, I can earn 5% in T-bills right now, but I get 8% in the mortgage if I'm paying it off, but that 5% gives me more flexibility and more optionality, and that could be... So I think that's what you have to weigh as well. How much liquidity and flexibility do you have in your finance? Precisely. And so for my 15-year career, Ben, I, I usually have not been in favor of paying the mortgage off, but the math changed a lot this year. I, yeah, uh, I, I agree. It, looking at a 7 or 8% mortgage, I would be thinking oh, much yeah. harder about making a bigger down payment or Amen. making bigger payments. Amen. That's fair. You've got it. All right. Sorry, guys. I zoned out there for a second. I'm of the generation <laughs> who can only dream of owning a home at some point. You know, so. I was going to say, what's Auntie Duncan doing these days? Uh, Duncan, what's your alter ego? Does, it, does he eat pork and ribs and fry steak? Like, what, what <laughs> Probably, probably. Like heavily, heavily into fossil fuels. Um, yeah, something like that. He's buying, Drive, buying a stock that trades on real milk. Drives a Ford F-350. Yeah, rolling yeah. coal in a dually or something. Yeah, Drinks milk directly from the cow's udder. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Next question. All right. Up next, we have a question from Wade. I recently retired in my 50s, and while 80% of my portfolio is in index funds, I have a substantial amount tied up in Microsoft from RSUs. You guys will have to remind me what that stands for. Uh, this position now accounts for almost 15% of my total portfolio and a hefty 30% of my after-tax assets. It's a great company, but even great companies face challenges, and I'm concerned about having too much in one stock. The long-term capital gains on this position are substantial due to my low cost basis of $60 a share. Wow, not to brag. Uh, I've been gradually selling and diversifying into ETFs, but the stock keeps rebounding, leading to an overweight position. I'm considering holding it long-term for heirs uh, with a stepped-up basis or donating it to charity, but I'd like to hear your suggestions. John, real quick. First of all, congrats to Wade for retiring yeah. his early 50s. I'm, I guess that Microsoft stock paid off pretty well. John, show up the chart. Microsoft actually hit new all-time highs recently. The stock market is still close. Microsoft was there. Amazing. So he said he's got a $60 cost basis, and he's at $370 for Microsoft stock. So not bad. One of the $300 per share of capital gains. Yeah, that's, that's uh, great. Pretty good. One of the two biggest <laughs> stocks that there is. So sounds like he made off pretty well here. Uh, I guess, first of all, 15% doesn't sound egregious to me. We've heard way higher numbers than that. We've heard com people come to us with 90% of their True. net worth liquid net worth in their company stock. So 15% doesn't sound terrible to me, but it sounds like he is just worried that that's still a big chunk, especially if you had index funds. Microsoft is the second largest company, so you already have exposure there as well. So maybe you don't want to overexpose yourself. So what are the options here? Because he, it sounds like he's up for anything. Yeah. And so Wade, uh, I mean, first off, Ben, like you mentioned, Wade's kind of built his portfolio around uh, this position. I think that's the intelligent thing. Wade's done a lot, I think, to, to kind of help with this. But the reality has been, uh, as far as index funds, uh, Microsoft makes up 7% of the S&P 500 index today and 10% of the NASDAQ composite. And so it's not just the stock that he owns directly. Um, but if you own an index uh, passive weighted portfolio, you own more. Um, but again, Wade, you've also, done- Also, Duncan, sorry. RSU, yeah, Restricted Stock Unit. 
Yeah. yeah, actually, Wade's in the chat. Wade just oh, answered my question. He answered your yeah. question. Yeah. Wow, yeah. a listener yeah. question. He Wade's going to answer your question. Duncan, for for the, the record, for the record, that was going to be my guess. Great, I, great. I just couldn't yeah, remember if it was restricted or registered. Yeah, Yeah, so he's getting, he got paid in company stock. And again, that worked out tremendously. And congrats, Wade, because ultimately, this is what victory looks like, Ben. I mean, this is what you would want your portfolio to look like. These are problems that I I want to have, right? Uh, The other side of the equation is I had 15% in this stock and it crashed and now it's 3%. Yeah, Yeah, and there's that that famous Reddit post of ExxonMobil or, you know, you can go through the names of companies that were the largest, uh, Kodak, uh, Eastman, et cetera. So what, I, I think what, this would be my order of operations for Wade in the chat. Number one, I would decide what percentage you're comfortable with and let that be your, your North Star and, and let that be the thing that you're building towards. And that if that's 10%, I think that's completely reasonable. To your point, Ben, 15% doesn't sound that crazy to me. Uh, so I don't think you're far away from what I would recommend. Now, and that might be 5%, though. You might not want to take on that risk going into retirement. I think you'd have to sit down maybe with a competent certified financial planner at Real Holtz Wealth Management or otherwise I'm a company man and whittle that down. So that brings us to number two. How do you start to whittle this thing down? Uh, Wade kind of hit, for me, the number one option, and he mentioned it in, in, his, in his question, which is charitable donations. Ben, a donation to a donor-advised fund in property, you do not have to pay the capital gain on the transaction. So Wade would say for each share he donates, he's saving $300 of capital gains income, and that probably translates to you know $600 of, of tax. However, you also get to take a deduction at the market value. And so at $370 a share, he's able to not only avoid capital gains, but then he gets the deduction too. So just hypothetically, if he's paying, if he donates $10,000, let's say, he would avoid a $2,000 capital gains tax and he would get a $3,000 tax deduction. So $10,000- It's like a double whammy, avoiding paying taxes and saving taxes. Double benefit. I wouldn't even call it That's a whammy. I mean. Yeah, then. double yeah. whammy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a double boost. But like to think about it conceptually, Wade would, would donate $5,000 after taxes, right? It'd be 10K on the transaction. But, but after the tax benefits, he'd still have 5K net market value. But the charity would get the full $10,000. So it's basically a way to turn 5,000 into 10 for the charity. I think that's a great way to, to play the game. And the way I would do that, Wade, is bunch. So if you're going to think uh, forward, like bunch all your charitable projections, the money you're going to give to your church, uh, to, to your charity, to the local library, do that all in for five years. Do it in one tax year. Take all that tax deduction up front. Once the transaction occurs to the donor advised fund, you can sell that position capital gains tax-free and effectively rebalance that portfolio with now a large charitable component. Now, what if Wade is not Mother Teresa and doesn't want to just give away his wealth? Yeah, 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 so totally. So Wade might need it. And, and so I think that the next thing for me would be, again, over time, to, to look to wait for ways to offset gains with losses. So Wade mentions he's running a, a, an index-based uh, portfolio. I would probably- Carve out 10% of your portfolio, let Duncan manage it. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> I'll, I'll have you some tax loss- yeah, harvesting. Put it in a not cow stocks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then, but ultimately, yeah, I would, I would seek ways to to potentially realize some some capital losses, right, and, and offset those gains with losses over time. And again, if he's at fifteen and he sees to make a target of ten percent over the next three tax years, Wade mentioned he's thinking about retirement, so income should be lower today than maybe it was two years ago, three years ago. Uh, begin to whittle that down in chunks, right? So don't you don't have to do it all in one year, but in January, realize a bunch of capital gains and then seek opportunities with that capital that you that you reinvested to. To, to look for tax losses uh, throughout the rest of the year. That's probably the game to play. And look, if the markets go up and you don't get those tax losses, again, you won the game then twice, Wait, So, and for me, Ben, if you won the game, it's time to stop playing. Right. And you, you always say like, listen, it's it's no fun to pay those taxes, but it also means that you won. Yep. It's better than the alternative. Yep. So if he wants it or needs to use it or whatever, and he said he actually said in the chat here, he's looking for a 10% overall target. So take it down Great. five more percent. Yeah. 
And so do, if you do have that to pay over those two taxes, years, that's also paid. Years. So you could you could do a combination there too. You mm-hmm. could give some to charity. You could you could sell some of them off to lock in the gains. The more exactly. Yeah. He, he also one, says one of the reasons he, his uh, his main holding is VTI. Is there an easy way for people to be able to see the overlap and like what their actual percentage of a holding it's like Microsoft Vanguard.com. I mean, yeah, okay, that, right. that, that, that would be but, but me. I mean, to see your portfolio and see across all of your ETF holdings and yeah, your single portfolio stock. X-ray Morningstar had a product okay. then a couple years ago that was yeah, free there's, for a, there's a few free stuff. I don't, I don't use that. Uh, the other thing, and again, I'm a company man, so I need to mention this, but you know, there are companies that'll do taxless harvesting for you, right? So Ritholtz Wealth Management, we we have a partnership with O'Shaughnessy Asset Management at Canvas. Uh, we, we run, I mean, my portfolio is at Liftoff, which is a Ritholtz Wealth platform that's run through Betterment. And, and tax losses happen while I sleep. Hold that, hold that thought. Next question is is right on this. That's if, let's if do Bill it. Bill says real health wealth management one more time, he turns into a pumpkin. <laughs> I'm a company right. man. Next question, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this this other option of direct indexing. Okay. Let's do it. Let's Last but not least, we have a question from Sam. I'm 38 and have $175,000 in a brokerage account, mostly in U.S. large cap index funds. My federal tax rate is close to 35%. An advisor suggested an SMA that does uh, tax loss harvesting to boost returns while being tax efficient. Is this a good idea? Can it consistently outperform the market after accounting for taxes? The fees are 10 to 15 times higher than low-cost ETFs, but I'm tempted if it, if it can help my long-term savings. What do you think about this strategy? Okay, so that the fees sound high, but VTI is three basis points, so we're yeah. talking... 30 to 45 basis points, whatever, for this SMA. Also, sorry to interrupt, but that's a separately managed account, right? I yes. hear this term thrown around a lot. What exactly does that mean, the cliff notes of that? So it's like you're buying and selling the actual individual holdings yourself as opposed to buying an ETF or a mutual fund. So Bill mentioned, we we do direct indexing, and one of the reasons we do it for is people who have a large position with a gain, and then what you do is you turn up the dial on tax loss harvesting to try to offset some of those gains, and you can't always do it one for one, but that's that's the the goal. And then so the question is for Sam here who asked the question is, is it worth it to pay higher fees? Does the tax loss harvesting piece more than make up for those higher fees? So that for people who aren't aware, direct indexing is essentially instead of buying an S&P 500 index fund, an SPY or VTI, that that sort of thing Mm -hmm. from iShares or Vanguard or Charles Schwab, I'm going to have this company buy all 500 stocks for me in proportion to the way that they are, and they can also do some tax loss harvesting because in that 500 mix, some of those stocks are going to go down each year. And we're going to sell off the losers to lock in those gains as losses, and, and that's how tax loss harvesting works. Yep, precisely. Miss, Bill? Yeah, that's it. And that that this directly, Ben, to your point, we segue directly into this from Wade's question. This is one way to potentially solve a concentrated position. And that if you have a, an algorithm that's trading uh, to mimic an index for you, uh, you can effectively set the dials such that you can lock your capital gains. You, you can tell the algorithm what you want your capital gains to be, and it'll figure it out over the course of a year if you right. give it You're essentially time. creating a customized index fund yep. with a tax loss harvesting piece yep. on top of it. Yep. So, yeah, I think concentrated positions make a lot of sense. Uh, if there's a lot of capital gains activity, let's say, elsewhere in your portfolio, if you're a real estate manager or you're buying and selling properties, uh, there's sometimes a lot of gains, depreciation, recapture going out, out there. And I guess the question, you know, can can a strategy outperform is unanswerable, right? A lot of strategies outperform, a lot of strategies underperform uh, a baseline index. I, I, I think for, for us, Ben, kind of our philosophy is, uh, you know, but don't 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 make things too complex, right? And so we most of our most of our exposure is index based. I think that's the way to go. However, O'Shaughnessy, other companies, they do have specialties. And so they, they might factor weight. 
is a great example to get a little bit of active passive exposure. And that does help a lot. Uh, another really neat application of direct in indexing through an SMA is you can effectively screen out portfolios. So in our example, you might you would not for Wade in the previous question buy additional Microsoft stock, right? So instead of shorting it or some other instrument, you just use the direct, direct index. And Canvas, you know, the, the, nom the name says it all. It's a blank canvas. And so you can you can paint the picture. And you can basically portfolio. XL. I want S&P 500 X Microsoft exactly. if you exactly. wanted. The other thing is, what I want to ask here for Sam is, what are the cases where, okay, because a lot of people come to us who have complicated tax pictures or estate planning or whatever, and Canvas makes a lot of sense to them. When mm -hmm. does this type of strategy not make sense? Is there a tax rate or an amount of money where yeah. you go, you know what, it, it's not going to, it's not worth the hassle. Yeah, I, th I think I mean, one big thing that comes to mind, Ben, if most of your assets are in tax-qualified accounts, like you're not going to get any benefit from tax loss harvesting. You would get right. benefits from factor weighting and other other, other methodologies. But yeah, uh, investing is more or less a problem that's been solved, uh, specifically through uh, the vanguardization, lower cost, uh, active exposure. So I think the other primary factor would simply be uh, a lower lower asset portfolio. Right, so if and when until we have fractional shares available, you know, buying a share of Microsoft, as we discussed in the last question, is going to cost you three hundred seventy dollars. So to replicate that for a ten thousand dollar portfolio is nearly impossible. Uh, so that's why fractionalization does occur with ETFs and other and other accounts. But yeah, it, for me, it's a cost benefit. Are the are the are the benefits I'm going to get from tax loss harvesting and, and other factors? Are those going to outweigh the additional cost uh, that Sam lays out? That, that I'm going to pay uh, a manager to manage this for me. And again, I think that typically happens, Ben, at higher tax rates. So we're talking higher income folks and higher dollar amounts, fortunately or unfortunately. Right, so him, in this question, he said we're up near the 35% range. So that, that's probably mm -hmm. a pretty good candidate yeah. for tax loss harvesting. I would think so, especially if he's in a high-tech state like our like our guy uh, John in the first question, right? So unfortunately, it depends. But that's that's the sketch that I play. And, and again, I, I can't say it more strongly. Like we, we are playing this game for our clients. So we do yeah. think that there's a lot of value here. And I think this... The hard thing for a lot of people who are retail investors is this is really more of a financial planning tool than it is an investment tool. It can help with investing, but I think you need someone helping you with it who knows what they're doing because yes. it's, it'd be hard to do something like this on your own and know yep. when to turn that dial up and turn it down depending on your tax situation. It's financial planning software, even though it's really applied to investments. That's a, just to give our guys uh, on the team a big shout out, Patrick Haley, Dylan Klonder, Alex Messer, Nick Gomes, the, the folks that put this together for us on our company, they're the ones who implement this. And what we learned over the last three, four years of working with Canvas, looking at O'Shaughnessy, a lot of work has to go in up front to get this right, to fine tune all the dials. And it does take that amount of expertise. And so some advice is worth paying for, in my opinion. Right. It's, uh, it's run again. by an algorithm, but there's a lot of heavy lifting manual labor that's done up front to make sure that algorithm is doing what you want it to do. I'm not going to say the company we work for again, because Duncan will jump out of a New York City window, but you, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Speaking right. speaking of uh, algorithms, though, you just made me think of uh, something John was just telling. John, our chart on John, was just telling us about the other day. He went somewhere in, in New York City that has coffee that's served by a robot. And I jokingly asked, did it ask for a tip? And he was like, yes, actually. On the screen, I asked <laughs> if I wanted to tip. What part of the economy, you know, like what part of the cycle are we at when we have robots asking for tips and just and people giving them apparently? I, I mean, for Robert Cialdini is going to be running these things and people are going to be just handing their money over. I'm not time. tipping a cure, Duncan, if that's where you're going. Like that coffee tastes like ass, so I'm not doing <laughs> well, it. Well, this this wasn't that. This this was like an actual robotic arm that like moved the cup over and put it down on the counter for him and stuff. It was kind of cool. If you don't drink coffee, you don't have to tip. That's that's my strategy. Hey, oh, those right, GPTs right. don't pay for themselves, you know. It's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. All right. Thanks, as always, to my personal tax consultant, Bill Sweet. Got your Appreciate back. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks to Duncan for sharing his portfolio once again. Oatley's going to have a Santa Claus rally, Duncan. It's coming. <laughs>
We'll see. Uh, remember, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, in the live chat. That was nice. We had Wade here, in here listening to his own question today. That was fun. Uh, subscribe, rate, review, all that kind of stuff. If you're watching on YouTube, leave us a comment or a question in there. We always appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. Thank see you, everyone. Thanks for listening to Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.